Welcome back to Inside Jackson Station. Mike Palmer here. Really happy to have you with us today. Dan Harrison, the author of Live at Jackson Station, is going to be speaking with Maddie Pfeiffer and Kat Brinkley from a band called The Sensible Pumps. You can hear Maddie singing a little bit in the background. Dan's going to talk to the two of them, get their perspective on what it was like to perform at Jackson Station, and hopefully we'll have a little bit more of their music to play along the way. I'll leave you with more of Maddie singing Angel from Montgomery by John Prine. Thanks as always for listening. Just And uh, I'd like to welcome Maddie Pfeiffer and Catherine Brickley to the show. Hi, Catherine and Maddie. Hey, thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you, Daniel. Oh, you are very welcome. I am honored to be uh, hosting you today. We had spoken on the phone a couple of uh, years ago when I was doing my research for the book Live at Jackson Station. Just to start things off here, let's kind of start at the beginning. Go back to uh, Charleston in uh, 1985, which is, uh, I believe, it's when the uh, band was uh, founded. Maddie, you were the uh, founding member of the group. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you uh, met Catherine and the other founding members of the group, Mindy Harvey and, and Susan Cree, and how the Sensible Pumps got going as a band. Susan and I were friends first, and I was playing some music with some other folks at the time, but it was a weekend kind of band, and Susan and I were talking about trying to put a band together that really was serious about trying to really make a living at doing music. And I met a friend of Kathy's named Christine who played saxophone, and she told me about Catherine, who was a piano player, and she was living there in Charleston at the time. So we got together and did a little jam session. Actually, I think the first time we ever played, we had to go over to the College of Charleston Music Hall and, and go into one of their studios just to get to a piano and see if, in fact, we could make something happen. And so we thought we could. So we knew about a drummer in Spartanburg named Mindy Harvey. So we called her up and, and asked her if she was interested in coming down and, and playing with us one weekend and, and seeing how things would go. So we got Mindy from Spartanburg and put together a rehearsal at a friend's house and ran through some songs and decided this was going to happen. We got Mindy to move to Charleston and we started rehearsing and then we decided it would be cheaper if we all lived together. So we rented a house, Uh huh. all moved in together. So everybody worked day jobs and we rehearsed every evening and then we started getting gigs. Um, uh -huh. And after a few years of doing local gigs around Charleston, we decided that we were going to make a go of it. So we all quit our day jobs and bought a motorhome and went on the road. Well, that sounds great. Maybe we can get Catherine's <laughs> comments a little bit about the origins of Sensible Pumps, and maybe you can recollect on the first time that you met Maddie and, and the others. My friend that played saxophone said, hey, there's this group, I think you ought to come and, and play. And I was classically trained. So I was like, oh, nobody can read music. I was real anal about 
being able to play music written on a piece of paper. And mm -hmm. anyway, I met everybody and I was like, hey, this sounds fun. And then I think Christine might have played with us a few times. And then she went back to California and it was the four of us. And we started to do music. It was really Maddie who wanted to play blues. We were trying to decide what kind of music that we wanted to play. And being a rock and roller, you know, I, I wanted to do some rock and roll. And Maddie said, you know, I think we ought to do something that nobody else is doing. Of course, a, a foursome of women doing blues was going to be a little niche in the market. And we started to learn to do blues, which was very different for me because uh, being classically trained, I had that time symbol in my head. Everything is like click, click, click. And that's really not the way it is with R&B. Right. Uh, R&B is more of a feel. Me being classically trained, I thought, oh, well, I'm going to teach them something. But really, they taught me something in the long run, how to improvise and play R&B. I'm really fascinated in how people first learn music and become exposed to music. You mentioned you were classically trained. So I guess that you had lessons when you were younger, when you were a, a child or a teenager. I, I did. I started piano lessons when I was in the first grade. Wow. And, okay. And, and I loved it. I never felt like it was a chore. I really loved to play. And then when I was in grade school, I played in the high school band. I played French horn in the band. And so when I got out of high school, I went to college for music, but I wasn't a very good college student. <laughs> I should have taken one of those gap years, they call it. Uh -huh. uh, but anyway, I was classically trained. I went yeah, to Newberry yeah. College. Yeah. And Maddie, how did you first come across the guitar? Between the sixth and seventh grade, around 1966. And I walked into the Western Auto one morning and saw a guitar hanging on the wall and said, I'll give you a dollar a week for the next 24 weeks for that guitar. And they let me have credit. I found a teenager here in Whitmire who played in a band and he said he'd give lessons. So I went to his house every day for that summer and he showed us a bunch of chords. Me and another guy showed us chords and songs and he was in a band. So we formed a band and learned every song they could play. We were like the mini version. We were the seventh grade version of his 11th grade band. Okay, cool. <laughs> Followed him around like he was a god and learned every song that they played, we played. And I just learned through chords and learning songs. So I, I can't read a lick of music. And yeah. all I can do is hear it and try to figure out the chords. It sounds wonderful regardless. So you guys are in Charleston. What were some of the clubs that you played down there? Do you remember? I think our first professional gig was actually, we were hired by one of the military bases to play. In Sumter? Some place we played uh, some military, a submarine base or something. We played for some soldiers. I know that. Yeah. So at at this point in time, you guys uh, still have uh, daytime jobs. Yes. Presumably. Yes. What were you doing to 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 pay the bills while you were at your music on the side? I was a PE teacher. Cool. Yeah. I actually worked in restaurants and. Okay. Uh, that was an early career. So you guys are down in Charleston, and then you're thinking about making the move, making this a full-time sort of a thing, and you can live uh, relatively cheaply up, up in Whitmire. And so <laughs> everyone moves to uh, Whitmire. Yeah, there was a little house for rent up here, and we knew the rent would be much cheaper than Charleston. And plus, it put us more centrally located in the state and closer. Charleston was a haul from uh -huh. 
hours to get anywhere. And so I'm guessing this was like uh, Whitmire's version of the Almond Brothers making house. I'm, I'm guessing right with the uh, late night parties and just people flopping on the couches and motorcycles and all that. <laughs> no, wasn't quite that. In that we we worked hard. We started actually. Jackson Station was one of the first clubs that we were hired to to play as a professional band. We actually went through an agent out of Richmond, Virginia, to get the job in Hodges. We didn't even know about Jackson Station. Neat. That's great. Let's talk a little bit about Jackson Station. We're going to take this opportunity to roll back to 2018 when Dan was first doing research on the book. And he interviewed both Maddie and Kat to help get the book together. Here's a little bit of sound from Dan's interview with Kat. Sure. I had heard of Jackson Station. I grew up in Saluda, okay. which is, yeah, only 30 miles from Greenwood. But I left Saluda in 1978 when I graduated from high school and went to Newberry College. Mm -hmm. So I knew about Jackson Station from going to... Greenwood when I was in high school and a little bit after that, there was always the folklore of this place out in the country that was a old train station, and it was run by a guy whose mother ran the door, uh -huh. and as the night went on, it became more expensive to get into the club. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They opened. Our playing time was like from 11 p.m. to 4 a.m., I believe, is what it was. Mm -hmm. And Miss Jackson ran the door, and she didn't take any crap from anybody at the door either. I was really afraid of her, uh -huh. but she was always very nice, and they always took such nice of us. They had the best hamburgers there. We were allowed to go up into, which behind the bar, there's some stairs that went up to a, it was like a little apartment mm -hmm. upstairs over top of the club. And we would go up there and hang out and change clothes. It wasn't huge, but we would eat and then we'd go up there and just hang out until it was time to play, which was at 11 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. So we would play. The crowd was always great, always very... Sometimes it, it, there's a club in Folly Beach called the uh, Sand Dollar Social Club, and it's known as a biker bar. Yeah. And you're always afraid of, oh, no, biker bar is a horrible place. But always what we found was they were the nicest people, and that's exactly how Jackson Station was, too. They were the nicest people that were there. Who goes out at 11 o'clock at night until 4 o'clock in the morning? If, if there was trouble there, I remember Gerald opening that side door and just throwing somebody out and then closing the door back. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like he punched him or anything. He just opened the door and they just pushed the guy out and just shut the door. Yeah. It was a fun place to play. The crowd reception was great there. Big stage. Lots of stuff mm -hmm. inside that club. It was covered with memorabilia and just stuff. And it had the wood stove in the middle, mm -hmm. um, back toward the bar, and uh, just covered. The walls are covered. Every, there were flags. There were all kinds of different flags. 
Jackson Station obviously had people from all over the map, and Gerald and Steve were obviously in a relationship together. I don't really know much about your band, but did people assume that you were kind of this, almost like a, a feminist, lesbian yeah. kind of blues band? Yeah. Is, that, is that what people assumed? Or? They definitely assumed that we were a, a feminist group of musicians. We weren't really considered musicians. Oh, really? Either. I, I, I don't think so. I think we always had to prove ourselves. Mm-hmm. But if you look at their flyers, there weren't any other women out there doing that. Right. There were no women groups. Yeah. And they certainly weren't playing R&B. Right, right. That was really all Maddie, because I was classically trained. Were you? And uh-huh. Yeah, and we wore Lycra. Mm-hmm. We got all dolled up, but we, had, we moved our own equipment and all. We didn't even have roadies or anything we had a kid that was martha's niece who would come with us sometime but we moved our own equipment and then had to pack up the stuff afterwards and you're driving out of jackson station at six o'clock in the morning wow yeah and the sun is up and you're like your head's buzzing because of music all night long and it was just a long night sure yeah so what did people make of you then? You said that the crowd was generally uh, receptive. Oh, very you... much. And a lot of the, the the women that would come there were like, yeah, go ahead, girl. Y'all, y'all are great. And a lot of the guys, I think, stood back and went, okay, don't know what to expect yet. And then they would hear us play, mm-hmm. and, and they would really like us. Mm-hmm. So we always had good following there. And plus, I knew some people that lived in Greenwood that were from Saluda that, that would come. We had a following. We sent out flyers. We would sit down and we would hand write out addresses and send those to people. We would get, I don't know how many hundred of them printed up, and we had the old-fashioned way. We had a mailing list, and people would write their name down with their address, and we would send them out, and we had Maddie Pfeiffer would do all of our bookings and we were pretty busy all the time we did get to meet coco taylor so coco taylor she was queen of the blues okay and we opened for her in charlottesville west virginia i believe we got to run into her a couple of times and she was always so wonderful and she was great she was she was fantastic you know i think she enjoyed that we were white women that were playing rhythm and blues too because mm-hmm. I'm sure in her circuit, back then, it was like all men that were playing. We were somewhat of a novelty, but people got to see that we weren't just a novelty, that we really could play. You can learn more from Dan's interview with Kat and his conversation with Maddie in the book Live at Jackson Station, which is available anywhere books are sold. We're going to pick back up with Dan's more recent interview with Maddie and Kat in 2021. Before we do, we're going to pick up with a little bit of sound of the Sensible Pumps bringing in the new year, 1989, at Burt's Bar, Sullivan Island, South Carolina. Let's hear a little bit of that rocking good time before picking back up with Dan's interview with the Pumps.
what were your first impressions of Jackson Station when you first pulled up in the parking lot or kind of walked in the front door? It was our kind of place. I, I loved it. And Gerald and Steve and, and Miss Jackson, they were all so welcoming. They were just nice people. That's all I can really say. They were just nice people. They treated you well. They made sure you were taken care of. And uh, they were just great folks. So it was a lot of, we felt comfortable from the minute we got there. Not playing until 11 o'clock at night. They were very gracious in, in providing motel rooms. And, and we were so close, we really you know, could drive home after the gig, but we used them to rest before we went to play because you didn't start till 11 o'clock. So we were exhausted by the time it was time to start, start the gig. <laughs> and remember, they had that little apartment or something above the club. It was like the attic, but it was a room. And I remember laying down up there prior to playing as well, because like she said, you didn't start until 11 o'clock and that's usually your bedtime we were having to try to go to sleep before yeah. you'd start playing because six o'clock in the morning when you're loaded now you're like seeing things jackson uh, station was definitely known for its late night hours late night late night yeah. early morning hours for sure live till five at jackson station that that's right yeah um so you you y'all would roll into town in, in the afternoon, presumably, and then you'd go to Greenwood Motel and take a nap. And, and then at some point, what, around nine or 10, maybe head up to the club and right around 10, about 10 o'clock. And then you'd go up upstairs and hang out in the in kind of the waiting area and, and, and get prepared for the show. Now your shows were fairly elaborate in terms of decorations and so on <laughs> for people who, who are not you know, familiar with you as a band, perhaps you can maybe describe a little bit about what they might expect to see at a sensible pump show. We had a backdrop that, and, and our whole name was based on that, that line from the Marilyn Monroe movie about, I need to wear some sensible pumps. And, and we did a thing on shoes. None of us, except the bass player wore high heels. She did wear high heels and fishnet stockings and could do the kick. She could do all that. You know, we had the backdrop, which I still have. And we had a lot of just feathers and, you know, boas and, and shawls, anything red and black. That was our color. And we had. And flamingos. Yeah. Yeah. Flamingos. flamingos. We had, yeah. And we would decorate the stage with our t-shirts so that we could sell them. And that was another marketing thing. We had t-shirts and we had buttons and we had friends that would sell them to the, the audience, but we decorated the stage so that everyone knew that they were for sale. Yeah. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about the crowd at Jackson Station, because it was known for being very diverse, very uh, unique, a lot of eccentric characters there. Anybody who comes out after 11 o'clock, <laughs> mixed folks. <laughs> And that's pretty much what it was, just whoever was out looking for a party after 11 o'clock at night. So, yeah, there was quite a cast of characters. And I remember people that I grew up with, because I grew up in Saluda, which was the next county over, that they would come and people worked in restaurants. And when the restaurants closed, they came to Jackson Station. It was well known that place was open after midnight and the place would get more and more full as the night went on. Yeah. Now, how were you treated there as a band? I'd say they were unique in that they were there. They were present. They were the owners. 
and they weren't just the workers they were the owners and they were there through the whole experience of arrival to loading out so it wasn't just dealing with people who were doing a job it was their livelihood and and they were very invested in it and they loved it and so they they treated you like you were friends and you were coming to a place to have a good time and they always fed us before we left at five six in the morning after we had loaded out the sun was coming up and beat a spur burger <laughs> I'm on a spice and I'm quite good, but they stayed with you. Yeah. <laughs> when you eat them at five thirty six o'clock in the morning for breakfast. Yeah. Maybe we can move on a little bit and, and talk about the tragedy that happened at J Jackson Station. And Maddie, I believe that you know you were there the night that the Gerald was attacked. I, I write about that in the book. You told me when we spoke a couple of years ago that you were watching Sweet Betty sing, and then you heard someone behind you saying that Gerald had been hit and he was lying out in the parking lot. Is that how you remember it? Yeah, Sweet Betty was on stage. I think Dream Small had already performed, and we were just having a big old time, and we crowded around down in front of the stage, and I just heard Gerald's been hurt. That's all I heard. So I immediately turned and ran to the parking lot, and there were people out there, and someone was already doing some first aid, but... I jumped in because I had some training in that. And so I jumped in to deal with the head injury and mm -hmm. stayed with him until the ambulance came. Wow. Now, the, the two fellas that were involved uh, in that incident, did, did you happen to see them earlier that night? They had already left. I didn't know anything other than his head had to be cut in it. And yeah. Well. Yeah. And I'm guessing that it was a pretty chaotic scene at that point in time in the lot, early lot morning. Starting to gather around, we had to wait. Felt like forever waiting for an ambulance. I don't know how long it took for it to get there, but Jackson Station wasn't real close to anything. Yeah. So my the friend that I was there with, we followed the ambulance to the hospital and actually went to the emergency room to to get updates and stayed there till sometime in the morning. And then. Catherine, you weren't there that night, so can you tell us how you heard the news about Gerald being attacked? Yeah, I was not there. I believe I heard it from Maddie. She's the one who contacted me and, and uh, let me know about that. And I was pretty horrified that somebody would do that with that much anger. You know, I mean, Gerald, he was the easiest guy. I mean, he didn't put up with any kind of crap, but he always had a way of talking and working things out with people. So it really had to be some evil people that did this to Gerald because he was such a great guy. If you're dealing with people in a club, you've always got people with personalities and then you add alcohol to it. Things can get out of hand, but he never, he was always so great about taking care of something before it got to that point. So I was pretty horrified to hear that. So Gerald is attacked and obviously he's horribly injured and has to spend the rest of his uh, life in a wheelchair. I do remember Gerald coming to see us play in Columbia one time. He was in a wheelchair because Steve brought him. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it was so good to see him. You couldn't understand what he was saying, but you could, but it, it took a little bit, but it was so wonderful to see him and he came to see us play, which was where, fantastic. Where was that show at? In Columbia. It was an outdoor thing, and I remember him in the wheelchair and us all hugging on him and talking to him, and he was so happy. He just, You could see the smile on his face, him being there and being with all of us. That's great. Was that the last time you saw him? It was the last time I saw him. Uh-huh. I think that was the last time I saw him, too. 
I ran into Steve years later working at a, a cafe in Columbia, still tending bar and living in Columbia so he could be near Gerald and open stable until the very end. Maybe we can talk a little bit about um, you know, what you think the legacy of Jackson Station is and how you think of that club in terms of your own kind of musical journey what's been happening in the intervening you know time since then when i moved to greenville i became a nurse and i work as a nurse practitioner now in the cancer institute but i've always played music on the side and have been in different bands i'm in a nine piece group uh right now called vinyl junkies and we do dance music i mean it's great you know with covid everything got canceled Mm-hmm. So it's nice now that music is live music is starting to come back and we've got some gigs coming up. As far as what Jackson Station meant, it was a place out in the middle of the country where people of all different looks and just everybody there was there to enjoy the music. It was all kinds of music. We used to go there and listen to bands play. And it just was a place that people could go and have fun. You could play pool. You could see your friends. Nobody was interested in starting trouble. It was all about the music. And the place was just incredible because there was so much stuff on the inside. Flags and posters. And it was just a a huge room where people came together and just enjoyed being together. It was just a fun place to go. So it's a, a memory that has meant a lot to me. And when you mentioned Jackson Station and people that have ever been there will say, boy, I sure miss that place. That's what I've heard. It was just so exceptional. And Maddie, you're still playing today? I, I play on the side. So around 1990 was when I went back into teaching. Then I got into school administration. So I, I play on the side. I've had band, a band up in Richmond, Virginia, and then I moved back here. And I just call whatever I put together, I call it Maddie Piper Band, so I don't have to keep changing names and logos and stuff. But doing a lot of the greatest hits and the sensible pumps, that's pretty much what I still do is the same songs for the most part. But the biggest legacy I've I, for Jackson Station, I've used um, that story a lot in working with kids when, when they lose their temper with each other and that sort of thing. I always tell them the story of Gerald Jackson and how he was a fellow who went off to Vietnam, was a medic in Vietnam, survived that, came home, bought this train station, moved it to a cow pasture, made it the place he wanted his club and how he loved it and everything was all good. And just in the spur of the moment, just in the heat of the moment, in one incident, everything changed regardless of what caused the anger that night. There's different stories there. Sure. Uh, in my recollection of it, Gerald went out there to confront the guy about some money he didn't pay, and the guy pulled the bush axe out of the truck, and that's what I teach kids is you never know in that one split second when you're confronting someone in anger or if there's any anger involved that everything can change on, on spur of the moment, and that Gerald spent the rest of his life as a quadriplegic based on that one thing that happened. So quickly, in just a split second. I know. I've told that story to quite a few kids and I don't know if we'll get through to them, but it, it sure changed me in terms of getting mad about something. You best just go cool off. Don't go confronting anybody while you're angry because that's not a good time to do it. Yeah. As you can tell, I spent six years of my life writing, researching about Jackson Station, never went there, but I, I, I really enjoy 
keeping the memory of Jackson Station alive and speaking to people who went there. Such an amazing place. I would love to see more places like Jackson Station, but I, I think they kind of broke the mold with it. But hopefully we can inspire people to dabble in live music and, and, and certainly you know, support working musicians in their own hometowns and communities. Dan, what's nice about that is that book is it tells the story of Jackson Station and now it's forever on paper, which is really nice because memories are great, but now it's official. It's on paper. Yeah. So we have a, a record of it. and Right. And the people that went there and the people that played there. And so that's really, it's really great that you did that. Thank you. I'm glad you guys liked it. And in a few more years when I don't even remember being there, I can recite <laughs> those years that are kind of a blur. It was a pretty, pretty wild and crazy time. Just uh, riding around in the back of that van sitting up on top of the equipment. That's right. The sun coming up and we were looking in the rearview mirror as they were chasing us out the door. Come back. Come back. Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate it. And with that, we'll bring this episode of Inside Jackson Station to its conclusion. To play us out, we're going to hear a little bit more of Maddie Pfeiffer from the Sensible Pumps singing Louise by Paul Seibel. Thanks for listening to Inside Jackson Station. Somewhere to the south I heard them say Too bad it ended so damn ugly Oh, too bad She had to go that way Oh, but the wind Blowing cold tonight Good night, Louise Good night